The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, over the past couple of weeks, we've done shows trying to understand what China's doing in different parts of the world. A couple of weeks ago, we focused on Venezuela and Chinese debt there. Last week, we talked about the China-Laos railway and also the debt for equity swaps that are happening in Laos, trying to get a sense of what the Chinese are going to do in Africa amid all of this change that's been going on, not just because of COVID-19, but also because of debt, the U.S.-China conflict and so much. So today we're going to pull out the focus even broader and we're going to look at the Belt and Road writ large. Now, the problem with looking at the Belt and Road is actually trying to define what exactly is the Belt and Road. And it's really one of these kind of Rorschach test where you can see anything that you want into it. And more and more now in places like Europe and the United States, people are seeing it as a kind of an imperial agenda, a very aggressive agenda. It's becoming more militarized, weaponized. These are words that you hear associated with it. In China, people talk about it's the expansion of trade routes. It's connecting the world with China. It's integration. It's multilateral. So again, it can be anything that you want. Kobus, what you think right now, based on what we've seen, What's your assessment of the Belt and Road today? Ah, such a difficult question. <laughs> um, it's you know, I, I think it's 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 really um, eye catching in terms of scope. Of course, um, I think you know, in in a lot of ways, you know, Africa still feels a little bit remote from the Belt and Road. Not because Africa isn't engaged in it. You know, kind of many African countries are signatories, but because a lot of what is done in the Belt and Road, the kind of rollout of infrastructure actually started happening in Africa thanks to Chinese money um, before the Belt and Road was an official entity. Um, and then we saw retroactively a lot of a lot of African projects kind of got pulled into the Belt and Road label, you know, kind of after they started as just kind of China-Africa projects. So, um, so it is this kind of very interesting and also quite vague you, you know, kind of initiative, I can see why it makes Western countries nervous. But at the moment, I think African countries remain relatively optimistic about it. But we will definitely see, you know, kind of like how it will shake out after COVID, I think remains the big question. So a lot of people try to understand the Belt and Road in terms of shipping, whatnot, and that is ports and railroads and things like that. But there's many parts to it. So there is the traditional Belt and Road. Of course, we've heard about this in Djibouti and Kenya. There's also the Digital Silk Road, which is also related to Djibouti. That, and there's a part of that, which is this cable that's going undersea. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that coming from Asia all the way to Africa. There's a space Belt and Road. They now have a health Belt and Road. So it's operating at various levels. Now, for a lot of people, when you hear the discussion in places like Washington, they talk about the Belt and Road in a very forward-looking future tense. The reality is, is that a lot of it's been built. 
and you can actually see it. And that's why it's really interesting to be able to see what's on the ground and really happening versus, say, what's theoretical and what will happen. So there's a new book that's out, The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century. It's written by Jonathan Hillman, who's a senior fellow at the Economics Program and a director of the Reconnecting Asia Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And we're thrilled to have Jonathan join us on the program for the very first time. A very good morning to you, Jonathan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book. It's really a fun read, and it was not one of these books which is very academic. It felt a lot like part travelogue, part geopolitics, political science. I mean, you actually went to a lot of the places that you talked about. So you weren't just sitting in the corner office there in downtown Washington, D.C., writing about it, but you went to Djibouti, you went to Central Asia, also into South Asia, and then, of course, to Kenya as well. So you have a first-hand perspective of what the Belt and Road is from the ground level. And so let me ask the same question to you to start our conversation that I asked Jacobus to help us give a definition to this thing that seems so hard to actually define. Well, it is a great question, and um, I think the reason it is difficult, um, well, there are several reasons why it's difficult to answer that, um, one of which is that there's no criteria for what a Belt and Road project is. Um, you know, so without that official criteria, um, you know, different interest groups have repackaged what it is they do as being part of the Belt and Road. Um, and so there's been, I think, a there's been a political incentive to leave it open-ended, to leave it vague like that. Um, that's led to a lot of project activity in the earlier days, but it's also created some serious management challenges. Um, the way that I think about this is that this is really Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. It's tough to talk about it um, without acknowledging that because th that also, I think, has um, propelled it forward, made it difficult to cancel projects sometimes. Um, and really, the, I think what, what ties together a lot of the various activities that are under this wide and ever-expanding banner or brand um, is that they're really they're focused on connectivity, um, focused on putting China um, closer toward the center of nearly everything, whether whether that's transportation, people to people ties, um, investment or or information flows. And so this is really a vision for global connectivity with China at the center of it. You mentioned um, in the book that that you know, as Eric also mentioned, that everyone essentially is is seeing the Belt and Road in different ways. Um, and Western countries are taking a very, a very alarmist kind of view of it. Do you, do you feel that that level of alarm is justified? So I think when I started looking at this, you know, I'm, I'm a uh, former U.S. government uh, official, and you know, I work at a think tank that studies foreign policy and national security issues, you know, from an American perspective. Um, and I think when I was when I started looking at projects, I was very tempted to put projects into one of two categories, you know, to say, I wanted to say, um, you know, either this project that I'm looking at must be driven by commercial motives, or it must be driven by strategic motives, you know, there must be some ulterior um, design here. And, you know, the more projects I've looked at, the more complicated um, I've come to realize it is. You know, there are projects that serve both of those aims. There are projects also, many of them, which serve neither of those aims. Um, you know, projects that are really built because the interest groups building them want to build them. The politicians announcing them want to announce them. And they might not be either commercially viable 
um, or you know strategically that significant. And so I think there's this this you know quite broad spectrum. You have to ultimately look at individual projects um, to help make sense of this. Um, and I do think, as you know, as you're suggesting, that some of the anxiety about um, this this set of activities um, is probably probably doesn't accord with um, you know really what's been delivered to date. You know, only a fraction of what's been announced has actually been delivered. Um, and this is a really tough, you know, especially when we're, when we're focusing about the infrastructure part of this, it's really tough business to deliver large infrastructure projects, even in the best business environments. And China has gone into some very difficult business environments. But they're doing it. I mean, there is a railroad that you took in Kenya. There's a new railroad in Nigeria. There's ports in Djibouti. I mean, it's happening, right? Yeah, it, it's happening. There, there are projects, um, where you know, in some cases where there weren't projects, so those are sometimes the most difficult um, projects to to um, to examine because you know the whole point of building in a place that hasn't been connected is to um, you know make it part of global networks in a way that it wasn't. It's to change, you know, it, it's to change and um, attract activity. And so if you know you go in the early days, it's difficult sometimes to imagine how that's going to work. Um, but there are also projects that have been built, um, you know, that haven't been built at proper specifications, uh, you know, or, you know, rather than, um, rather than upgrading, um, an existing railway, you know, to build a new one running alongside of it. Um, so I think there's, even in the projects that have been built, there's some evidence of, um, some evidence of excess and, you know, I worry, I worry about that a little bit in terms of, the commercial prospects of some of them in the longer run. In, in your book, you um, you make the point that in the first place you, you raise the issue of of, of Chinese uh, collaboration with Russia um, and the, the the central role of Russia in in the larger success of the the Belt and Road. And then you you also say that um, at the moment you feel that that the United States is essentially pushing Russia and China closer together rather than you know kind of like cannily working to try and and kind of weaken the relationship between the two of them. Um, wh what do you mean by that? So, you know, I think Russia, when you look at, you know, you see these Belt and Road maps, which I, you know, all of them, I think we should, um, we should sort of read with some degree of skepticism, even the ones that um, my project at CSIS produces. Um, but if you, you know, just if you look at the map of the Eurasian supercontinent, where a lot of this activity is happening, um, and, you know, for China, really the prize at the end of the Eurasian supercontinent is the European market. Um, and to get there, you know, to get there by building transportation links um, and expanding in, into markets, uh, you know, you really need to go through areas where Russian influence, um, where Russia still matters. You need to go through the Russian-led Eurasian Economic Union. You often, you know, you need to go through parts of Russia itself in some cases, depending on the routes. And so Russia is really the gatekeeper for China's overland ambitions, and it could really spoil um, the Belt and Road. I don't think any country is better positioned to be a spoiler. Um, but I think Russia, you know, not having um, as many options uh, in its dealings with the West right now, uh, understandably so, has been, um, you know, it's been put into a position where it's looking more toward China to do, to do business, to attract investment. Um, and so I think that's why you've seen this embrace of the Belt and Road by Vladimir Putin, 
um, and a lot of discussion about linking the Belt and Road with the Russian-led Eurasian Economic Union. You know, in the book, I talk about sort of why conceptually that that seems like it could work, but in reality, it's probably pretty exaggerated, and there hasn't been too much evidence of you know cooperation on specific projects or very limited evidence so far. Um, so still a lot of barriers for them to to you know to do that linking. Um, but in the meantime, you know, the, the U.S. has been, um, you know, in formal documents like its national security strategy, talks about Russia and China as if they're peers, um, which they're not, right? And um, it talks about them, I think, as if there's more um, cooperation um, there than there sometimes is. It depends on what it depends on what dimension of that relationship you're looking at. But, you know, on, on the connectivity economic side, you know, I see it as pretty um, limited to, you know, energy, dominated by energy. Um, and the further you look at it, I think the more evidence you see of lingering mistrust, um, especially on the Russian side. Um, and so, you know, I talk about that more in the book. And there's a project in particular that I think sort of that illustrates that. Um, so I think those, I think recognizing the divide that still exists in that relationship would be a, a smart basis for U.S. policy rather than talking about it um, as if it's more unified than it actually is. Let's step back a little bit and go to the beginning of the book when you open up and talking about the fact that what the Chinese are doing today really harkens back to a previous era of imperialism and global domination and hegemony. When you reference back to the British Empire and talking about how the fact that there is a sense of, of of imperialism. Now, that's a word that I think would make most Chinese people recoil, and certainly the Chinese government, who are very proud of the fact that they will tell you repeatedly, we've never colonized another country, we've never conquered another country, we've never invaded another country. That being said, in places like Africa, the perception that China is a neo-colonial power, true or not, is nonetheless there. In, you use the, the, the phrase incremental imperialism, and you talk about how the Chinese are laying communication connections, much like the British did. You talk about how they're building ports, much like the British did, and the flag tends to follow trade. So militarism tends to follow expanded global trade. So there are some parallels to Britain's imperial era. Talk to us a little bit about how you see this in terms of incremental imperialism and what you meant by that. So I agree it is it is a term, you know, imperialism is a term that, um, you know, I think comes with so much, um, you know, rightfully so, comes with so much uh, historical baggage. And so um, it feels it feels loaded, uh, it feels heavy. But, um, you know, I, I think if you and there are also different, you know, there have been different forms of imperialism. Um, and so, you know, if, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, um, which, you know, perhaps appropriately, was uh, created during the reign of Imperial Britain, it has a definition for imperialism that feels almost timeless. And I think it says, it, it describes it as um, the extension and maintenance of a country's power or influence. And I think it says through trade, diplomacy, uh, military or cultural dominance, etc. And so I, I think that, you know, that definition, um, I think certainly applies to the Belt and Road. Um, and that the part of the definition, the et cetera part, I think is worth probing further as we think about uh, how digital infrastructure might um, might give China influence. Um, 
but to me, the, the historical parallel, and I, I talk about this in the second chapter of the book, the historical era that comes to mind when we're looking at these activities right now um, isn't, isn't the, you know, the Silk Road that's often promoted as being, you know, the image uh, that we're supposed to think about with the Belt and Road. And it's also, you know, that's also usually a very romanticized version of the Silk Road and, you know, Marco Polo and camel caravans and, you know, an exchange of, you know, goods and ideas and mixing of cultures and all of that. Um, you know, the reality, you know, life during that period, um, was, was pretty tough. Um, and, uh, to me in economic terms, um, the Belt and Road is not going to uh, bring about a shift of economic activity from the maritime domain into into the overland domain um, in the way that you know overland trade was dominant during that initial Silk Road period. Um, but there is there is a, a chapter of history, um, you know, the period, especially the period leading up to World War One, where countries were doing. We were competing for influence, building large projects beyond their borders. Um, and I, I find a lot of um, interesting parallels in that set of activities, both in terms of the technology that was being used, you know, deep sea ports, telegraph cables, um, you know, railway connections, a lot of that being the predecessor to the, to the types of projects that are being done now. Um, and of that, uh, one very interesting set of activities that you mentioned is uh, what Britain referred to as its um, its network of all red routes, which were telegraph cables that touched only Britain and its possessions um, in order to limit the ability of foreign countries to monitor British communications. Um, and, and Britain also dominated a lot of the, um, the know-how and the equipment that, that was needed to lay and repair those cables um, and all of that, you know, it began really as a commercial comp competition, um, but all of that was very useful, um, very critical in the early days of World War I when Britain was cutting enemy cables um, while continuing to maintain its own. So to me, that's, you know, I, I hope that's not where we're headed, obviously, um, but it's, I think, a, a sort of closer comparison than the romanticized Silk Road era. Together with all of this infrastructure provision comes the kind of expansion of Chinese companies out into the world and then their interactions with all of these different governments um, that, that's commissioning some of this work. Um, and with that comes corruption, um, you know, and, and we've seen in, in Africa as, as, the, as the, the kind of discussion around Africa's um, debt crisis um, gets more and more heated. There's also a lot of discussion about the kind of cor the corruption involved in some of the decision making around some of these projects. Um, and in, in, you, in your book, you, you, you make the statement that, um, that corruption isn't a bug in the BRI, it's a feature of the BRI. Um, so, you know, kind of, yeah, talk a little bit about how corruption works in, in the BRI context. So I think the Belt and Road is definitely opaque by design. Um, you know, if you look at, I mean, I've, I've spent now too much time looking for information on Chinese projects. Um, but, you know, if you were to go to, um, to look at a project that's supported by the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or another um, multilateral, you could see, you know, all of the project details on their website um, very easily. In fact, you know, the, the trouble might be actually there might be too much documentation there. You might be sort of um, swimming in, in documents and it might take a long time to, 
to, to find um, exactly what it is that you're interested in. If you compare that to the just the, the difficulty sometimes in finding very basic information about projects that China is supporting, um, you know, it's just a it's a night and day difference in terms of the level of transparency. Um, and so Chinese officials say things like, you know, Belt and Road is a sun, sunshine initiative, um, you know, but the reality is that it, it isn't, um, you know, my job would be a lot easier if it was. Um, and I, I think it's been done that way because, um, you know, it benefits, frankly, it benefits actors on both sides of a deal. You know, every every deal, you know, it takes both sides to, to do a deal. Every project is a negotiation. And so some of the advantages of doing it in that more opaque manner um, are that you have less outside scrutiny. Um, you know, you're able, that often gives you the ability to uh, to move faster, to get things off the ground faster. That can be appealing if there's some kind of political timeline, like an upcoming election, or it can just be appealing because these projects take a long time um, and you don't want to have to um, jump through as many hoops sometimes um, if, you're, if you're building it or um, if you're having it built for you. And the danger in doing that, though, is that... Um, you know, the, the checks that exist in places like the World Bank, which, you know, in some cases, I do think that they've become perhaps too slow, perhaps too onerous, uh, in, especially in a context now where there are these, these um, alternative um, opportunities. Um, but the danger is that, you know, you're moving fast and not, um, not doing the risk assessment that you need to do up front pushing that risk further into the project cycle. And then, you know, inevitably, or, you know, unless you're very lucky, that's going to come back at some point. Um, and so I think the the downside of this is, um, you know, pushing a lot of risk further into the project cycle. The, the upside is that, you know, a lot of, for China, a lot of the projects get started faster. Um, and, and, you know, to be to be fair about this, corruption is not at all, you know, something that's unique to Belt and Road. But these the Belt and Road's um, focus on large infrastructure projects, I think, accentuates um, corruption as a challenge because you know, large projects are almost tailor-made to um, have money, you know, siphoned off at various places given the number of parties involved, given the ability to, um, you know, inflate prices for certain inputs um, and that, that's, you know, that's a challenge worldwide, but it becomes even more a challenge in riskier business environments and even more a challenge when there's a lack of transparency. I'm glad you brought up the fact that this is not just a Chinese burden here, in part because we're seeing some new research coming out of aid data. Bradley Parks over there at William & Mary College, uh, they just did a survey of 83 different loan contracts. And one of the clauses that they found in the contracts is, is very interesting here. Let me just read it. It says, the borrower shall not disclose any information here under or in connection with this agreement to any third party, and here's the key part, unless required by applicable law. And the way that aid data was phrasing that, which is a national legislature in any country can pass a law which says these contracts must be made transparent and everybody should be able to see it, which is why in Nigeria we actually get to see some of these contracts, but in other countries we don't. And so it really shows that the burden is on both sides here on the transparency side. And there is a loophole in these contracts, according to what aid data is finding there. Uh, so I just think that's that's a very complex, interesting part uh, of the dynamic in terms of. 
how the Chinese are doing things. And this is the, the concern that we see expressed certainly out of the United States. And we're starting to hear this more. Robert O'Brien, who's the National Security Advisor, he gave uh, he was participating in an online conference last week. And the word that he kept using to talk about the Chinese was dependence. This seems to be the new rhetoric coming out of the United States with vis-a-vis their concerns about the Chinese. And that was very interesting because when you were writing about how BRI is trying to, or the Chinese through BRI, are trying to change the vocabulary of international relations, integrating words like sovereignty, win-win, non-interference into the global discourse, into the United Nations, into deals. Interestingly enough, Donald Trump himself has been bringing up the words like sovereignty quite a bit and playing right into a lot of what the Chinese are trying to do as well. But what about the rhetoric of the BRI and, and changing the, the language of it so it feeds into this notion that eventually dependence comes out of the rhetoric? So I think the, the rhetoric, at least from the Chinese side, has been, I think you can see in some of the rhetorical shifts, evidence of awareness about some of the challenges that the Belt and Road has faced. Um, and so I think we have to keep in mind that you know, the Belt and Road, as it was announced in 2013, is very different than the Belt and Road that existed in 2017 and in 2019. And, you know, indeed, after the pandemic, it will look different as well. Uh, but the rhetoric, um, especially at the second Belt and Road Forum, you know, seemed to indicate that Chinese officials were aware that they are trying to push back on criticism of, um, you know, low environmental standards, corruption, lack of transparency, um, debt risks. And so you see that in the rhetoric. Um, and, you know, you see some um, seriousness, at least in some of the documents that were um, that were issued at that forum. You know, the, the framework for you know, debt sustainability um, reads like it was written by the IMF. Um, but the problem is that, you know, a lot of these things that are being pushed out, um, they're not, you know, binding for the, the countries who participate in the Belt and Road. Um, the, the implementation is not transparent, so it's kind of impossible to know where it stands. Um, and so I, I do think that there's been a series of rhetorical moves that highlight a, a, a level of awareness about challenges. I'm not sure yet that we've seen a lot of it translated into action, but I think it's, it's, something, um, it's something strategic that um, Chinese officials are doing when they talk about, you know, things like the importance of multilateralism or, you know, when they talk about um, having, you know, new environmental targets, I think they're able to do that and face less, um, you know, less scrutiny um, in part because the United States has not been providing an authentic alternative. Um, and so I think we really need to we really need to move beyond, um, you know, saying all of the things you know that we're against that that China's doing, um, and speak more about the things that we support and, and what we're for. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. 
so very basic question, but if, you know, say the Belt and Road Initiative works incredibly well, like it works as well as Xi Jinping is, you know, envisaging, um, what would that look like? Like what would the world look like with a, a fully functioning Belt and Road Initiative of, you know, a few decades down the line? So if this thing, if this really worked in all of its, um, in, in, you know, realized the full extent of its ambitions, I mean, you would be looking at, you know, the return of the Middle Kingdom. Um, you know, you would be looking at um, a uh, you know, series of corridors going across the Eurasian supercontinent that, you know, with China at the, the hub of it all. Um, and, and, you know, yes, you would also be, um, you know, on the ambition side, you would also be looking at, um, you know, countries um, having projects, you know, that, that work and that are supporting um, you know, the goals that they have. Um, but I do think that they would be part of this structure, um, you know, a hierarchy um, in which they would be subordinate to China. Um, I, you know, just that, that seems to me what the maps look like um, and what this, these, some of these ideas for these corridors look like. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that um, these ambitions are going to be delivered, you know, anywhere near um, what they're described as. You know, the corridors, I think, are a pretty convenient framing tool for giving some structure where there often isn't very much structure and where activity has been a little bit more opportunistic and, and chaotic. Um, uh, so I, I think I'm, I'm struck more by the challenges that China would face or continues to face um, as it tries to realize those ambitions. Um, doesn't, you know, doesn't mean we shouldn't we shouldn't take what it says seriously, um, but let, let's also try to compare, you know, the reality on the ground to um, what's said in these grand halls. You have a great line in the book that in in dealing with the Belt and Road, China is also dealing with with countries that have that have been handling large powers for much longer than China has been a large power. And you know, so so which kind of lessons can kind of relatively small, relatively weak countries like like countries in Africa take from China's more immediate neighbors in in terms of how to handle the Belt and Road? You know, to, in in a way that that doesn't ruin them and then gets them get them something in the end? It's a great question. And I think that ultimately, you know, at least in the, the short to medium term, that's where a lot of the solutions reside. It, it's in having countries be their own, you know, best advocates. Uh, and, you know, some of that, um, it's things, it's things like, you know, greeting an unsolicited project proposal with a bit more skepticism than a project, you know, that has been on the top of your, you know, development strategy for some time. And, you know, fr frankly, I mean, having a development strategy is is important um, so that, you know, you don't have situations um, like Sri Lanka where you're building a port um, in the south with capacity that you don't need because you have, you know, an existing functioning port. Um, and, you know, I, I think having so having technical having the technical um uh, capability to evaluate contracts very closely and to, you know, look at things like, you know, Eric mentioned, you know, the clause about um, not being able to disclose the contract terms unless required to by national law. You know, if I was, if I was trying to negotiate um, that language, I would want it the I would want the default to be that um, unless there's a national law that says I can't <laughs> um, disclose it, that I should be able to 
disclose these. Um, there, there are things like uh, other clauses, like what happens when there's a dispute, which is quite common in lar large projects. Um, you know, Chinese negotiators will try to have that clause say that the disputes need to be settled in courts in China. Um, and so being able to um, push back on that um, is important. It's easier if you have um, uh, experience, expertise, but also information. And so getting information about how others have been dealing, um, you know, the terms of their, their contracts. Um, so, I, you know, I, there have been some interesting examples where, you know, country A finds out that country B got a lower interest rate. Well, they're going to they're going to push for that lower interest rate. Um, so, I, so I think there's also an opportunity in addition to, to just countries um, trying to um, bring more scrutiny to individual projects and to negotiate hard bilaterally. There's also this opportunity for some collective action. You know, imagine if there were, um, a, you know, a group of countries who are sharing with each other their experiences uh, about what it's been like to participate in this, um, sharing, you know, to the extent they can, information about, um, you know, some of these deals. Uh, I think, you know, collectively, um, that would lead to some better outcomes than to, to doing all of this bilaterally behind closed doors. Well, which is why the Chinese put those confidentiality clauses in the contracts in the first place. They probably don't want people to do that. Exactly. <laughs> Just my, my guess there on that. Let's close our discussion the way that you kind of finished the book. And I'd like to get two, I'm going to put two questions in one because I know our time is very limited here. You, you talk about that Belt and Road spending, even before COVID-19, was starting to tail off. So the days of $6 billion railroads in Kenya were, were probably going to come to an end with or without the economic crisis brought on by COVID-19. That being said, now that we're in the midst of a crisis, both in places like Africa and also even in China, where the economy has hit a wall to some extent, uh, they may be a little bit more apprehensive about those big ticket spending items. So I'd like to get your sense as to what the world looks like post-COVID-19 in terms of the Belt and Road. And then very quickly, if you can tack on to that as well, that maybe the United States and the West, who's been criticizing China over the poor quality of construction and the, 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 the roughshod way that sometimes these deals are done, if China actually slows down and is not investing as much because it's being pickier about the projects it chooses, the quality goes up. That might not actually bode too well for the U.S. And, and the European critics who are saying, you know, this is crappy stuff. And at the end of the day, it actually turns out to be quite good. So looking forward, what are we what are we seeing post-COVID-19 and in terms of quality? So looking forward, I think we're we're going to see um, a, a smaller project pipeline, like you indicated. And, you know, as you mentioned, we had been seeing a decline in Belt and Road related activity even even prior um, to the pandemic. That said, there's still all the, you know, a lot of the projects that have been announced in recent years, um, many of them are still, you know, somewhere between an announcement and, you know, completion or cancellation, right? They're, they're in this middle phase, um, which is natural for projects that take, you know, several years usually. Um, and the, the pandemic pressed pause on many of them. Um, and so they're, they're going to be, I think there's still, there's still the, the wave of projects that were announced, let's call it during peak Belt and Road in 2016, 2017. Um, those are still in the works. Um, so that's still as yet to unfold. Um, and I think, you know, so even if Belt and Road really were paused entirely, we'd still have that, 
that collection of activity, um, which is consequential. Um, but the pandemic, I, I do think, is is pushing um, a, another dimension of the Belt and Road um, to the front. It's also, by the way, going to, I think, require a lot of renegotiating of existing deals. And so um, that's probably a higher priority um, in the, the short to medium term is, you know, a renegotiation of a lot of deals than a negotiation of new deals. Um, but one of the dimensions that's really coming to the forefront here and that I, I expect we'll see even more of um, are the Belt and Road's digital dimensions. And you know, digital infrastructure has been part of the Belt and Road since day one. Um, often, you know, digital infrastructure is packaged with infrastructure that you might not think about as being digital. So, uh, you know, in the port of Piraeus, um, for example, in Greece, Huawei has redone the network, the, the network there. Um, and uh, fiber optic lines are often laid alongside roads and rail projects when they're done. It's easier to do it at the same time. So there's been, you know, there's been that activity there all along. But I think one of the reasons why we're going to see this uh, become even more of a focus, um, well, a few reasons. One is because uh, the, the borrowing potential of many of the participating countries is more limited. Um, and while, you know, digital infrastructure projects are not cheap, they do tend to cost less than the big transport energy projects that, that really characterized the Belt and Road's first phase. Um, and there's this incentive on the Chinese side to find um, new markets for their tech champions who are facing some headwinds, um, you know, some increased scrutiny in um, Western markets, particularly in developed economies. And so I think the Belt and Road for those companies becomes a, a very convenient um, avenue um, and a necessity, frankly, in order for them to compensate um, for some of the losses that they're seeing elsewhere. Um, and you, you mentioned what, what, what happens now in this world in which we have uh, a smaller project pipeline. Um, does China have the opportunity to increase the quality of these projects? I think it definitely does. Um, and, you know, this has been, frankly, quite a management challenge in, you know, peak Belt and Road days. The number of projects that are being that were being announced, I think, far exceeded the ability of the Chinese bureaucracy to do the quality control, to monitor them on the ground, um, you know, deferring often to state-owned enterprises to do um, a lot of the more technical work and then not being able to monitor them. Uh, and so I think there's an opportunity there to increase the quality um, and there is this, on the one hand, on the other hand, dimension to this, which you mentioned, which is, um, you know, if if China takes the advice of its critics, if it makes, um, you know, environmental standards more important, if it makes social impact standards more important in these projects, uh, if it makes debt sustainability more important, the Belt and Road is, is more likely to succeed um, or these projects are more likely to succeed um, and could that be? Could that ultimately be? Um, you know, something that comes back to haunt the, those same critics. Um, and I think we have to be. I think you know the U.S. Um, and others who have been skeptical of some of these projects. I think we have to be confident enough in our own abilities um, to welcome that competition. Um, you know, to say you know we would prefer that um, the developing world in particular have projects that are commercially viable. You know, that's the, that's actually a world we would prefer to live in, not one, um, you know, where projects are, 
uh, harming communities, harming the environment, saddling countries with debt. Um, so I, I think I think we should welcome that competition. Um, and I hope that, you know, a smaller project pipeline does lead to ultimately more viable projects. The book is The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century. It's written by Jonathan Hillman, who's a senior fellow in the economics program and director of the Reconnecting Asia Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us about the book. I, I can't recommend it enough. I'll put the links to Amazon for everybody to buy the Kindle version, the audio version, the hardback version. It comes in every way you want it. So, uh, But I know you're on Twitter, and if people want to connect with you and follow what you're reading and writing and the work you're doing at CSAS, uh, what's your handle that they can follow you? So it's at Hillman, J-E. I will go ahead and put a link to that in the show notes, again, as well as the Amazon link to The Emperor's New Road. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much for having me. Kobus, every year, one or two books comes out that just changes my whole thinking on a topic. And this is one of them. And I, I love it because you wrote it like a journalist. It is, there's a lot of similarities to Howard French's Second Continent. In fact, he references French a couple times in the book. But it, again, it's this part travelogue, part geopolitics, political science, economics, and he mixes it all together in a very kind of easy to understand way. I'm not a big fan of the traditional academic book. I like these narratives. And when he's talking about his on the ground experiences in Central Asia, in Kenya, in Djibouti, it just adds so much texture and flavor and it becomes more real. And that's one of the key things here for me. There are facts on the ground here. And every time I hear the rhetoric about the Belt and Road out of critics in Japan, the United States, and Europe, I get it. I don't disagree with anything that the critics say. But at the end of the day, there are ports and railroads and satellites and healthcare networks that are up and out the door and doing stuff. And I still have this big problem of trying to understand what does the United States in particular stand for? The BRI is a complete mess. It's a Rorschach test. It's all of the things that Jonathan laid out in his book. But at least it's a vision of some kind, and that matters. People can rally around something. We have in the United States, for example, America first. I, I don't really know what that means. I don't think anybody really knows. That's a Rorschach test as well. Europe, I think, for the most part, as a continent, the EU, does not have a foreign policy vision right now. Japan is in transition. Abe certainly did. In the absence of real bona fide com competition, in many ways, the BRI is something, and that's important. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, that's the thing. It's, um, is, uh, you know, I completely understand why, um, you know, kind of American officials are alarmed at the BRI, and I com completely understand they need to kind of push back against it. But if the vision that one is using to push back against it is simply that all, all of this Chinese infrastructure is bad, all of this Chinese internet networks are bad because Huawei might, might spy on you, then the the next question, you know, from places like Africa would be, so, you know, what do you offer? Um, and if, you know, if, if, if the answer is simply, well, don't use Chinese stuff and then a period, then that's not good enough. Well, as we heard this week, the United States has finally now come up with, a, with an answer to that question. Exactly that. Where the United States Agency for International Development together with the Development Finance Corporation and the U.S. Export-Import Bank, three government agencies are now going to start providing governments with financing, 
presumably as an alternative to ZTE and Huawei. I wrote on Monday in our newsletter three reasons why this is going to fail and why it's dead on arrival immediately in a place like Africa, but at least they're coming up with some alternatives, poorly conceived, not very well strategized. Nonetheless, they are trying to come up with some kind of answer to that very question. But the fact is that the, the Americans have been coming up with supposed alternatives to the Belt and Road now for years. Remember the Blue Dot Network? Does anybody remember the Blue Dot Network? Do you remember the Blue Dot Network? Actually, I don't. I've done <laughs> the Blue Dot Network is supposedly this uh, this this you know alternative of uh, of the BRI, and it's like the clean network that Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, announced in terms of providing an alternative to Huawei networks. And they're trying to build all these things, which are alternatives, but. At the end of the day, from what I can see, it's more vaporware and marketing than it is actual substance. The fact that you in a think tank who studies China and the global south and looking at U.S. foreign policy doesn't know what the Blue Dot Network is, is remarkable to me. Uh, it's maybe just my personal failings. It's not your failing. It is because this is a vaporware kind of project. And the same, I think, is going to meet the fate of this Huawei financing thing. I mean, it's so poorly conceived. It's embarrassing to watch sometimes when they come out with these ideas. And they're so excited. I watched this on the DFC event. This is the, the Development Finance Corporation. They had this online conference last week. And they're all talking to each other. And it shows you that in Washington, there's a gravity all their own that's unique to Washington. And it's one insider talking to another insider. And we're going to beat up and take on China. Yeah. And everybody's like, yeah, yes, great. Beat up China. And meanwhile, there are facts on the ground, and that's what I keep coming back to, and this book takes you to those. Now, he's a little more skeptical than I am. I don't think this is going to be that successful. Uh, I don't think it's going to reach Xi Jinping's glorious kind of, you know, ambitions, but there's there are railroads and ports and satellites and all the things that I mentioned. That's something, and I think that's so important. Let's talk about Africa very quickly and the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road, you know, encompasses now, uh, I think, all of Africa, right? They swept up the whole continent, and I think, in putting yeah, it, roughly, which yeah. makes I don't know zero sense to me why they would do that. Senegal is very excited that it's part of the Belt and Road, but most countries in Africa have not had any material benefit from being part of the Belt and Road. So I wonder if that undermines the long-term value proposition for China in terms of this policy. If they're talking it up, everything's a BRI project, but at the end of the day, a country like Senegal doesn't have much to show for it is it just at the end just make people feel kind of like meh well this is the this is the issue that i was pointing out at the beginning is that you know that all of these chinese in uh, projects in africa precedes the coining of the belt and road and have, have subsequently kind of been pulled into them uh, into the belt and road retroactively so uh, you know um, Danny Madrid Morales, who's a, a media scholar who we interviewed before, he did really interesting research on on the coverage of Belt and Road issues in Africa versus the coverage of China-Africa issues. And China-Africa issues gets a, a ton of coverage, and Belt and Road issues frequently don't get any coverage at all. Um, you know, and and I, so I think in, in a lot of ways, Afri African kind of African populations, African media tends to focus on the Africa-China relationship, um, and Belt and Road kind of becomes 
becomes you know becomes a kind of a side issue um, I mean I think among other reasons because it's it Africa doesn't particularly have the the kind of strategic uh, you know kind of fear around the Belt and Road that that many other places have it's 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 not so close to China that it's that it can easily be built into China's neighborhood and it's also not you know doesn't have the kind of footprint in the world that the US has that where, where it can feel threatened by the Belt and Road so so I think you know what what I foresee actually is is kind of is Africa essentially saying yes to everything you know kind of like yes yes Belt and Road yes American counter Belt and Road initiative fine everything's fine like as, as long as there's more infrastructure then great I think that where, where the where the, the problem comes in though is financing and debt but it also might be because the journalist writing that story just like you and I don't really understand what the Belt and Road is whereas China is a very precise phrasing definition target language we know what China is right we don't know what the BRI is, so let's just talk about China because it's synonymous with the BRI. That might play a factor into why there's less media coverage. There was something that Jonathan said in our discussion, and he made a very key point in the book, and any policymaker in Africa needs to read this book and be very, very worried about what he said. The project pipeline is slowing, not just because of COVID-19, but it slowed beforehand. And this goes to this question that you and I have been trying to look at in the post-COVID-19 era, what happens? And we've been forecasting that there's going to be a lot less Chinese money coming into Africa. They're going to be more selective. The projects they're going to do are going to be much smaller. The feasibility questions are going to be first and foremost now. So the days, again, of a $6 billion railroad going into, say, the Naivasha inland port in the Rift Valley, and then nowhere else after that, those are coming to an end won't happen anymore. What happens to African leaders who are desperate, as you pointed out, to get more infrastructure? Where's that financing going to come from if it's not going to come from China? Well, that's a very good question. And, you know, it's, it's a very difficult one to answer. I don't think I necessarily have a, a kind of a clear answer to it. I think, you know, much of the thinking around what kind of infrastructure is crucial will probably have to change. Um, you know, like I saw I saw an African leader quoted recently, I, I forget who actually who, who said that, um, that, you know, putting in IT, ICT networks are now more important than putting in roads. Um, you know, and it, it might be that that Africa African leaders start becoming a lot more picky about the particular projects that they that they really want to push um, it might be that they find other forms of uh, other ways of revenue other forms of, of financing um, you know as the continent integrates more economically m different kinds of financing might come up um, all of these are, 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 are possibilities I think in you know like uh, in, in the short in the short term I think this this is gonna cause pain um, in Africa. But I think the, the, the thing is that the continent's infrastructure financing models, you know, the way that it, that it interacted with the world to try and build more infrastructure have those have always been broken like you know world bank infrastructure world bank infrastructure chinese infra you know chinese funding all of those have been problematic in different kinds of ways so so you know kind of africa will need to move away from them anyway there's no way that africa can develop itself through just chinese funded infrastructure it's just impossible so you know so so in the, in the medium term hopefully they will develop kind of more 
robust ways of funding funding things that they really feel they need um you know but but i think the the transition in towards that is going to be hard i think it's going to be very difficult in the ghanaian presidential election in the campaign that i've been following quite closely now in the run-up to the december vote you're hearing the opposition parties talk about how they're going to borrow more and they because they need to build an infrastructure in order to generate the economic growth this is the thinking in many ways that has got us into the problem that we are today, which is taking on massive loans without an economic plan underneath on how to repay those loans. Macky Sall, the president of Senegal, last week at the DFC event online, said something very similar, that where is the financing going to come from? He wants to raise more money for infrastructure, but Senegal has an economic base that is still largely maritime and agrarian. So that's not going to pay off billion-dollar loans for roads and for bridges and things like that. I suggest that David Ndee, the Kenyan economist, is where we should be thinking right now, much more in line with what he's saying. Ndee talks about how instead of investing in physical infrastructure, money now should be, should be devoted to uh, human capital, education, healthcare, strengthening the human capital. That is going to get a much bigger bang for the buck than buying a road or a railroad. Very different Different model here, but in the post-COVID era, you and I talked about on a recent show, things have got to become smaller. Microfinance, microgrids, human capital, investing in education, healthcare, all those types of things to better societies. That's, I think that's where my, my two cents, where we should be going. Where do you think we should be going in the post-COVID-19 era? Yes, I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's because it's, we're not only dealing with the recovery from COVID, we're also dealing with this kind of monster of climate change that's on its way. Um, you know, and and is already affecting Africa in many, many kind of crucial ways. Um, and yeah, you know, so so I agree with you. You know, I think I think human capital um, development, education, that's really where it's where, where there's going to be kind of massive investment needed. Um, and I think if if you know for for countries that are pulling it off, because some African countries are pulling it off, um, they you know they 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 have a lot of, of a, a, quite a bright future. I think in in, in lots of ways. Um, I think the 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 issue is frequently. Um, I think one of the reasons why it's it's a difficult thing to do is is in in lots of ways building building a, a functioning road system is a lot simpler than building a functioning education system, because the thing is you know education is dependent on people and people retain trauma right so so Africa you know one of the things that 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 we don't talk about enough is that Africa is is such a incredibly traumatized society if one takes the, the 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 continent as a whole as a society which i think one can make the, the argument for but then individual african societies are unbelievably traumatized and trauma visits itself in on education systems you know it's difficult to to have a, a functioning education system if if teachers face you know kind of retain trauma and kids are facing fresh trauma every day um and i think i think this is this you, you know kind of the, this is one of africa's biggest challenges but if they pull it off then you know the sky's the limit um so yeah you know kind of an, and that that is where i would like to see more more investment these are the issues that we're breaking down digesting chewing up spitting out all the different metaphors that you want in our daily email newsletter uh, we write about this every single day in a daily column that cobus and i put together cobus is on tuesdays and fridays i do monday wednesday and thursday and what we're trying to do with these columns is to take some of the ideas like what we're doing at the end of the show and give people something to think about in the very quick, you know, just a quick turn on the day's event. So 
on the day that the story ran about Huawei and the U.S. financing program, we had a perspective on it. And the whole point is to be able to give people something to think about and talk about and to frame it, not to persuade you or convince you of anything, but just to get those ideas moving on some of these issues that really don't get covered in most other mainstream publications. So that's what comes with our newsletter. It's super cheap, $7 a month for students, $15 a month for everybody else, students and teachers, by the way. And it's only $3 to try and sign up for three months. So we really want to make this accessible for everybody. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Let us know if you have any questions. You can email us directly, eric, E-R-I-C, at ChinaAfricaProject.com, or Kobus, C-O-B-U-S, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again next week with another two episodes. We come out uh, Tuesday and Fridays. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the program. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be see you again next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>